Thanks so much, Leo. This afternoon, in this second week of our series on resurrection, we're thinking about resurrection bodies. Maybe not something we think about very frequently. But we do quite regularly here at 4pm say together the Apostles' Creed. That's a creed that some of us might be quite familiar with, some of us may be less familiar with it. But if you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, I wonder if you can remember what are the last two lines in the Creed. Can anyone call them out if you can remember them? It's hard to start from the end, isn't it? Life everlasting, the resurrection of the dead. Yes, the other way around, but the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Thanks, Jackson. Yes. So in those two lines, we move pretty quickly over two really mind-blowing concepts, don't we? Both of them are beyond our personal experience. Both of them push the limits of our understanding. Both of them are really challenging, but I think of the two, the idea of resurrection of the body is the more challenging. Perhaps this is borne out in some research that the Centre for Public Christianity commissioned a couple of years ago. They asked McCrindle Research to survey a thousand respondents and it asked them about their openness to the existence of a range of spiritual things, ghosts, miracles, angels, a soul, life after death, a whole lot of things. I just want to have a look at the results of two of those questions. So the first one was this. Is there more than we can see and touch? Now, you probably can't see that very well on the screen. But the far right column shows us the results for how people responded to being asked if life after death exists. And of this group of people, 48% said they believe life after death exists. And 28% more said they were open to the possibility that life after death exists. That's more than I would have thought. So about 75% of people either believed in life after death or thought it was a possibility. Another question I wanted to show you was the question, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Again, this is really interesting. And the figures are a little different here. 23.6% said, I am certain that Jesus rose from the dead. 19.7 said, I think it's possible that Jesus rose from the dead. So that was about 43% of the respondents who said, we either think it's certain or possible that Jesus rose from the dead. I thought that was quite a lot, but it's not as many as said, we believe there is life after death. And maybe that makes sense. The idea of life after death is quite amorphous. It's intangible. It taps into ideas of the soul. It's a hopeful and comforting idea in many ways. The idea of Jesus rising from the dead bodily is much more confronting. It runs counter to our experience of everyday life, doesn't it? It raises all sorts of questions. And then the idea that we might rise from the dead compounds those questions. Because we know, don't we, that when you die, your body doesn't last. When you're buried, your body decomposes. If you're cremated, your body turns to ashes. So it seems logical enough to say that if there is an afterlife, there's no coming back in this body. 
All of this anticipates the question that we heard at the beginning of our reading today. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? We're going to dig into Paul's answer in a moment. But we've come into 1 Corinthians 15 halfway through Paul's argument. So I want to go back to where he starts because he rests his teaching on our resurrection from the dead, on that of Christ's resurrection from the dead. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting from verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. At the heart of the gospel is Christ's death for our sins, his burial and his resurrection. Death and burial are occurrences of life, everyday occurrences of life. But resurrection is not. So Paul makes it very clear that the resurrection of Jesus was confirmed by eyewitnesses. The 12 disciples, 500 followers of Jesus, most of whom are still alive. So you can go and talk to them and ask them about it if you like, is the inference. The apostles, James, Paul himself, a lot of people saw and heard Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Paul writes to give us confidence in the bodily resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. And on the basis of Jesus' resurrection, he goes on to answer the questions of verse 35. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Which I think are really good questions. So it's a bit surprising then to read Paul's initial response. How foolish. But on reflection, I guess there are two ways to ask questions like this. One is as an honest inquiry, genuinely interested in what the resurrection body might be like. The other way to ask this question is as someone who thinks the whole idea is ludicrous, someone who's hoping the person answering the question will make a fool of themselves. Paul got both of those types of responses when he spoke about the resurrection on the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is answering the sneering sort of question. But Paul isn't embarrassed. For him, it's the dismissive skeptic who's the foolish one. That's why he says it. How foolish. Paul thinks these are silly questions, as we'll see, because they don't take seriously the power of God when contemplating the possibility of a resurrection body. But even though Paul says how foolish, I think these questions are valid questions. And we see that because Paul goes on to answer at length. His answer might not satisfy everyone, but it certainly helps us to fill out the implications of what we say in the, in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. 
And Paul's explanation comes in two parts. First of all, he talks about the how and what of resurrection bodies, answering the two questions in verse 35. And then he goes on to talk about the why, the when, and the so what of resurrection bodies. So first of all, the how of resurrection bodies in verses 35 to 38. What you sow, says Paul, does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. I don't know if any of you are good at gardening. At this point, I feel my inadequacies as a gardener, and I started Googling, are seeds alive? Uh, That took me down a rabbit hole I quickly needed to back out of. Uh, The point here isn't the technicalities, but the analogy, the picture that Paul paints. When you plant a seed, you don't do it for the seed to stay in the ground alive just as it is, do you? The purpose of planting the seed is for it to die because a plant or a tree has grown out of it. And when you want a new plant or a new tree to grow, it's not like a production line of cars where you turn up and get given the the finished product. You plant a seed, and out of that seed grows the tree that you want. God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All through his analogy, Paul mixes his gardening terminology of seeds and plants with body terminology. And this is the picture. One thing dies and is buried. Then something new comes alive out of what was buried. The two are connected, but they're not the same thing. And if you're a gardener, this would probably be really obvious to you. It's obvious when we look at this picture. This is acorn seeds. And when planted, they produce oak trees like this. This picture of life coming out of death is Paul's answer to how are the dead raised. Just as God gives each seed a new body when it's planted, so God gives those who trust in Christ a new body after death. There's a beautiful note of God's sovereignty and his grace in Paul's answer. God gives it a body as he has determined. After our death, we have no ability or agency to act for ourselves but God will give us this body as he has determined. I don't know how many of you have seen someone after they've died. I have a few times and it's really confronting. The first time I saw someone when they were dead was when I was in year 12 at school. We had another family living next door to us They had a few children, and one of them was about six years younger than me. Her name was Vicky, and she had leukaemia. And really sadly, she died when she was in year seven, I was in year 12. And so I went along to the funeral with my mum. They were an Italian family, it was a funeral in a church, and their custom was to have an open casket, an open coffin, and for everyone at the service to walk past the coffin to pay their respects. I felt really nervous doing that, but I I wanted to do that to honour their custom. 
And I still remember how Vicky looked in the coffin. She looked beautiful, but she looked really dead. There was clearly no life there. This was just a body. Death is incredibly confronting. But God gives us a beautiful message of hope. How are the dead raised? God, by his sovereign power, by his sovereign will, will give each of us a body as he has determined. Out of death, God will bring life. That leads into the second question that Paul mentioned in verse 35. With what kind of body will they come? Again, Paul starts with an analogy. Not all flesh is the same in verse 39. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind, the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendour. It's a really obvious point, isn't it? Different parts of creation are made of different stuff according to their needs and their purposes. Fish have scales and gills. Birds have feathers and wings. Elephants and polar bears are really different from each other because they live in really different environments. Verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a poetic beauty to this description. It's interesting that in their poetic brevity, these verses don't say who does the raising of the dead. But in verse 38, God is the one who gives everything natural bodies. And the implication here is that God is the one who will raise the dead. Our bodies will be raised imperishable by God. They will be raised in glory by God. They will be raised in power by God. Our bodies will be raised as spiritual bodies by God. Think back to those pictures of the acorn and the oak tree. There's an organic connection between them, right? But there's also a huge discontinuity between the appearance and characteristics of the seed and the appearance and characteristics of the tree that grows from the seed. In a similar way, Paul wants us to realise we would be foolish to look at our failing or decaying bodies and think we could discern from its present appearance what it might look like in resurrection. The difference between the two will be as dramatic as day and night, as seed and tree. Sisters and brothers, the answer to the question about what kind of body we will have is that the resurrection body will be incorruptible, glorious, spiritual, powerful, suited to resurrection life. It's an amazing picture. It will be like Christ's resurrected body. Verse 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. 
The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also of those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Where did Paul learn about the character of the resurrection body? He learnt from his knowledge and experience of Christ's resurrection body. In fact, what we learn here is that Christ's resurrection body is like a prototype of what ours will be. I wonder if any of you watch MasterChef. I've sort of given up in the last few years, but I used to watch it a lot more in the early seasons. And one of the segments I thought was really fun was when they would invite on an expert chef or a celebrity chef, and they would create some amazing thing, dessert, or a main meal, and the contestants on MasterChef would then have to copy, do the same thing. And I've got a few photos of some desserts. Uh, I'm surprised that these kinds of desserts could be made once, let alone copied at all. And I always felt sorry for the contestants because their desserts never looked anything like the originals. But amazingly, our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus' resurrection body. Paul makes the same connection elsewhere. In Philippians 3, he says, At the second coming, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In Romans 6, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his how will we be raised by God's power? What kind of body will we have? We will have a body like Christ's resurrection body. But these verses talk about a spiritual body. For, for us, I think that feels a bit like a contradiction in terms. Spiritual is intangible. Body is tangible. One commentator explained it like this. Paul's reference to a spiritual body is the most elegant way he can find of saying both that the new body is the result of the spirit's work, answering how does it come to be, and that it is the appropriate vessel for the spirit's life, answering what sort of a thing is it. So the how of resurrection bodies is by God's will and power through death to life. The what of resurrection bodies is a body like Christ's resurrection body. Next, we read about the when and why of our resurrection bodies in verses 50 to 57. Why we need these new bodies is at first reading a recap of what our resurrection bodies will be. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 53, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So as we've already seen, our resurrection bodies will be, will be made of different stuff to our current bodies because resurrection life will be different from our current life. Our present bodies need to be transformed so that we can enjoy resurrection life, to fit us for resurrection life. But there's a deeper reason underpinning our need for resurrection bodies, and that is the sting and victory of death. 
Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My first car was a 21-year-old Ford Laser. It looked a bit like this. It's kind of stylish, isn't it? Some of you are smiling. Maybe you've driven one of these as well. And it was fantastic. It just kept on keeping on when I was a theological student. I had a great mechanic who raved about this car, and I agreed with him. It had a few surface issues, literally. So it leaked when it rained. Where I was living was on a pretty steep hill. If I managed to park the car pointing downhill, the water would drain out beautifully. If I was parked uphill, I'd have to bail it out with a bucket. But the engine kept going when I really needed it to. It was fantastic. When I did finally finish my study and started working, I saved pretty hard to, to buy a new car. I went along to the mechanic to talk about what I might buy. And I had in my mind that I'd buy another Ford Laser because this one had been so fabulous. But to my surprise, the mechanic said, no, don't buy another Laser. The current models are no good. They have some significant issues. It reminded me of the times when a recall is issued on a particular model and make of car. Even the best make of car can sometimes have an irretrievable, irretrievable fault in a particular model. Sometimes the issue is so serious that you get given a new model to replace the faulty one. Humanity is like a car that has an irretrievable fault. Our fault is sin that leads to death. But in his life, Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't sin. He lived a perfect life so that he could deal with our sin on the cross. He has taken the sting out of death by dying in our place, by being raised to life, defeating death and offering us resurrection life. Jesus offers us victory over death. He offers us resurrection bodies when our physical bodies get recalled in death. These new bodies are a new model not completely different, but perfect and without the irretrievable fault of sin in our current models. Imagine life where death has been defeated, where death has no sting. That's what God offers us as we trust in Jesus. It sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? That's why Paul grounds all of this in the historical resurrection of Jesus. It happened once. It will happen again for all those who trust in Christ. When will it happen? Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the last trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. It will happen when Jesus returns. Why do we need resurrection bodies? Because we need bodies perfectly suited to resurrection life. And life in those bodies will begin when Jesus returns. So what does that all mean for us now? Certainly it gives us hope for the future, hope in the face of death, but that's not all. 
Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul encourages us in three ways in this final verse. Stand firm. Don't be moved by anything. Throw yourselves fully into the work of the Lord. I wonder what this might look like for you. What will help you to stand firm in Christ? To keep standing firm always? Are you doing those things? What might make you vulnerable to being moved from that firmness? Perhaps there's a narrative that makes you doubt the goodness of Christian faith. Perhaps your experience of life in a world of suffering makes you doubt, threatens to move you. Perhaps your expectations of God haven't been met. Paul's encouragement is not to be moved, not by anything. That doesn't mean putting our heads in the sand and ignoring the questions. It means exploring them. We need to be honest with the challenges, the difficulties we face, with the doubts we have. Look for answers, but also face those things with the realities that we've heard in 1 Corinthians 15, the realities of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Finally, what does it look like for you to throw yourselves fully into the work of the Lord? This phrase refers to the things we do in service to Christ. It doesn't mean we all need to be Christian ministers, but it's referring to things we wouldn't do if it wasn't for the fact that we had put our faith in Jesus. Things like praying, things like serving at church, things like being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ when someone asks us, things like loving our neighbours with all of our hearts, sacrificially. What does it look like for you to throw yourselves fully into the work of the Lord? This verse gives wonderful meaning to life. One writer put it this way, there is an underlying continuity between present bodily life and future bodily life. And this gives meaning and direction to present Christian living. I don't know if any of you watch Q&A, I sometimes watch, and I was watching on Easter Monday. It was a really interesting show that night, and maybe because it was Easter Monday, the first question was this one. As Australia becomes more diverse, both religiously and ethnically, do you think the Easter story is still relevant today? It was directed towards the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney. I think he did a pretty good job, but it's a pretty big question to be asked without notice on national TV, isn't it? You might like to think about how you would answer that question. Do you think the Easter story is still relevant today? What we've heard this afternoon is one of the reasons that the answer to that question has to be yes. Yes, more than ever, the Easter story is still relevant today across cultures, across religions, across people of all ages, across genders. 
Across everything that differentiates people, there is one commonality. We all face death. The Easter story offers what no other faith can offer, no other worldview, no other political ideology can offer. It offers a man who was raised from the dead to life forever. A man who offers us what he has, a new body and life with him forever. It's an outrageous claim, isn't it? It's a claim rooted in history. So let me encourage you to investigate this claim if you haven't already. And if you have investigated, and if you are convinced, then stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.